Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for January 3rd, 2021, our first show of the new year. Welcome, as always, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. Happy New Year. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, great to have y'all both on here in about 20 minutes. We're going to welcome back for the second time onto the Kudzu Vine, Mr. Chuck Rocha. Uh, Chuck is making news everywhere. He's on every source. Um, he's got a big announcement, which you may can allude to tomorrow coming up, but we're going to talk to him about the Georgia runoff, Texas politics, and several other um, issues around the country, especially with a focus on uh, Latino politics. Uh, but until then, there's all kind of news going on, and let's start off with January 6th. Now, um, you know, I think all of us studied the Constitution in high school, college, wherever, but it's like we're getting a refresher course in constitutional uh, practice and theory because, you know, usually when somebody wins the popular vote for, by 8 million votes, they win the Electoral College by over 70 votes. It's kind of a done deal. There's really not much to think about. Well, when Donald Trump's in office, it's always what's the next step. And the next step is uh, January 6th, and it's been probably, like, what, close to 200 years before this was not a um, – well, maybe a little under there because of uh, the election of 1876. This was not just a formality. Um, but uh, two or three days from now – three days from now – on January 6th, the um, Senate and House have to certify the results and, you know, finally declare at that stage of the game Joe Biden winner. And one would normally expect, once again, with those two victories, this was just a formality. Catherine, it appears that for some, including many senators at this point, it's not a formality. It's crazy. It's just crazy. <laughs> it's crazy talk. And like we said in the pre-show, uh, you know, it's no- nothing's done until it's done. And uh, I think we're all on pins and needles waiting for whatever happens on Wednesday. Yeah. And then to the next step after that, whatever that might be. Yeah, well, and pins and needles, we shouldn't have to be, but Josh Hawley of Missouri got all this started by saying, you know, he would um, contest the vote. And then it became, oh, well, who's the real Republicans? Who's going to join with him? Ted Cruz joined with him. Marsha Blackburn joined with him. Tommy Tuberville joined with him. Uh, there's a bunch more, uh, uh, way too many. Tim, what is their end game here? Well, uh I would say of of those 12 senators that 
have done this, probably three or four of them are going to be running for the Republican nomination uh, in 2024. That's their end game. I would also imagine there's a couple of those of the 140 House members, rumored 140 House members, uh, that are going to object that they'll be running for the Republican nomination, too. So it's it's a power thing with them, and what they want is uh, access to uh, Donald Trump's base and Donald Trump's blessing if he does not run himself in 2024. Uh, for the others, I think it's the same old thing that we've talked about all this time. I think it's uh, electoral fear, basically. They are fearful of Donald Trump's base. They are fearful of Donald uh, Trump tweeting about them. And uh, they don't, uh, after the election, they don't really see why they should have to act any differently now because uh, not a Republican incumbent lost in, in uh and you know, in the House at least, and uh, at, at just for today, Republicans still control the Senate. So the election outside of the presidential election went a lot better for them than they thought. So uh, why not do this? That's the way they look at it, and that's what they're going to do. Yes, um, I've. Uh... Just wonder where you know why do they keep pushing this? Because at some point, doesn't this hurt their brand with those voters that they need to get to majority? Now, obviously, the hardcore base loves what he's doing, um, loves what Josh Hawley's doing. But those voters that are going to take them, you know, conceivably into the majority in those states that are trending more Democratic, these voters are going to see this as anti-Democratic. More problems. These never Trumpers. They're far less likely now to come back. Um, Catherine, what does it do with those voters? Well, I think um, their main concern at this point is about being primaried. So they need that base to, you know, support them in a primary. Um, so. I, I don't understand what the end game is. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I'm glad to say. I mean, I'm kind of feel good that I don't understand it because if I did understand it, what would that mean about me? <laughs> but um, yeah, I I think this is about uh, primaries and fear of um, that Trump base. Yeah, you're probably right, but that, that's why they've done so many things. Even before Trump came along, oh, they're worried about getting primaried, and they do the next thing you don't think they'll do. And so you have to wonder where it's going to stop. Now, um, Tim, we've got these procedural things going on on January 6th, but Donald Trump's talked about it being a wild day and, and you know, trying to, I guess, stir up um, some folks like the Proud Boys and other groups to, you know, take actions outside of the Capitol, um, the Capitol building, not necessarily the District of Columbia. Um, what do you think – or fear could happen that day. Well, I, I, I hope there's not violence, but we've got people on the internet uh, giving people advice on how to smuggle weapons into D.C. You know, you you cannot conceal carry in that city, um, <clears throat> and, 
and 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 they they've come up with the idea. Hey, that's exactly what we should do. Uh, secondly, Trump is uh, you know he's he's stirring them up. Um, what if they commit violence on say federal property? What do the local police do about that? For instance, there, there's that sort of thing to think about. It is going it is going to be a while that Trump has even indicated that uh, if they show up for a mass rally somewhere, he'll, he'll come out there and see them. Oh, oh, that'll be terrific, won't it, while that's going on um, in the Capitol. So, you, you know, there, there, there's a possibility that there could be some real trouble. Yeah, I think that's what I'm fearful of. And let's say it does turn into you know, some pretty substantial, you know, violence or um, what have you. And and it has to be kind of, I guess there might have to be two sides to have, uh, you know, a true violent picture. I mean, if it's just like they had their march the other Saturday, they tore down some banners and things, but there wasn't a group on the other side to cause any kind of, you know, clash. Um, you know, I'm thinking the six is going to be the same thing. There's going to be people in D.C., to do the business of the government, but do they push it to the next step? And on Inauguration Day, which we know Inauguration Day is going to look a bit different because of the pandemic, um, at some point do they keep doing these little protests um, until there is a, you know, a, a two-sided problem? Uh, Catherine, what's your thoughts on what they do with this and then moving on to maybe Inauguration Day? Well, I hope that um, the people – that disagree with them can resist uh, inflaming this because I think the best uh, approach to this is to ignore it and to not engage um, with these protests. Um, No good comes from that. We've seen it time and time again. Um, I know it's uh, hard to resist sometimes, but I'm hoping that we're the, the opposition or the, you know, the people who oppose this uh, stuff will resist that because I, 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 I'm fearful that it would, um, it, it would, it could get get violent and um, and no good comes from that. So I'm hoping that they're not engaged. They just can have their yes. little protests and go home. Yes, Tim. Now tomorrow night in Dalton, um, I don't even know where it's at. If it's there's an airport in Dalton, um, there is. What have you? What do you expect to? Is this going to be a preview, or is this going to be like some of the rallies we've seen before with Donald Trump? No, I thought I think this is going to be your typical uh, raucous Trump airport rally. Um, He. that he is supposed to be at the municipal airport up there. I don't know how big the airport is or whatever, but he's supposed to fly in there. And they're expecting, you know, um, ten to 20,000, they say, maybe more. So um, yeah, I think it'll be, they, you know, a Trump rally is about Donald Trump. Trump doesn't want violence at his rallies. He wants adoration and screaming for him and, uh, locker up and you know you know that sort of thing. What's going to be interesting tomorrow night is to hear exactly what Donald Trump might have to say about the fact that he lost 
the election in Georgia, what he's going to say about the Republicans who control the state. Will he call out the governor and the secretary of state by name? And what kind of homage will he pay to Kelly Leffler and to David Perdue, who this is supposed to be for? Will he just say a, uh, two or three Senate, nice sentences to them, pat them on the head, and then spend the next hour and a half uh, talking about himself, which that's exactly what I think will happen. I think you could be right about that. Um, Catherine, regarding these rallies, now he had one a few weeks ago in Valdosta, and I think I pointed out to y'all that is not in a Georgia media market. That is in um, a little bit of the Tallahassee media market. I think one of the networks does have a Thomasville, Georgia station, um, but he went on the border of Georgia and Florida. Now he's going to Dalton in the Chattanooga media market on the border of Georgia and Tennessee. Now, seemingly, if you wanted to win Georgia, you've got to take out some slice of metro Atlanta. You would want to be in the 800-pound gorilla media market that you know just dominates the state. What's the strategy here by picking these kind of fringe parts of the state instead of the population center? I think he's going where he thinks his supporters are. And, um, you know, it's Donald Trump. He gets media wherever he goes. He'll, you know, he'll be on the, on the evening news, the local evening news tomorrow, wherever he is in Georgia. So I don't think that's um, – and, and plus I think there's a, a lot about even though it might not uh, be talked about, I'm sure it's more it, – as far as security and convenience – it's a lot easier for him to fly into Dalton and do a rally at the airport there than to come into Metro Atlanta and do something here. Um, so I think that might play into it too. But I think he goes where he thinks his supporters are. Yeah, I think you're right about the supporters. I do think um, before when he was trying to hit like four rallies in a day and he, and he uh, came to Rome, he definitely had to get in and out. But seemingly he has all the time in the world because, as we know, his public schedule is um, <laughs> pretty much non-existent. Yeah, but, 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 um, but, 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 but. Go ahead, Tim. But, 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 you, you've seen the numbers. And uh, the 2nd, 11th, and 14th, are arguably the three most conservative districts or among the three most conservative districts in the state. And Trump will be landing in the 14th district in, in a, a county that votes pretty much heavily Republican. And they, their early voting numbers are just not good up here. And, you, you know, one of, one of the ideas is to drive those numbers up. I mean, when you know, it looks bad when when the 14th has some of the worst early voting numbers in the state, and then you turn to the fourth and the fifth district, especially where Catherine lives, and you have the best early voting turnout numbers in the state. They got to do something to drive numbers up uh, amongst their base. Who better to do that? Donald Trump, right? Well, I mean, it should turn the numbers up, but then Whitfield County is not as large as, say, Hall County, closer to Forsyth County. Um, 
you've got Cherokee County. I mean, I, I don't know. Hall County today is voting what, heavily. Hall yeah. County is not a problem. Whitfield yeah. is. Okay, because Hall County is much bigger population-wise. Um, yeah, but uh, they're as they're yeah, and, then, and even though you know Forsyth County has added more Democratic voters than it used to have, it still has a ton of Republican voters. Uh, Cherokee County, it it's really it may be the best Republican county in the state now as far as true numbers over percentage and that kind of thing. Um, well, now let's talk about this tape that dropped today. Um, Washington Post reported it, and it was a, a seemingly. Brad Rathensberger, Georgia Secretary of State, recorded it, um, audio of Donald Trump pretty much just saying, change the vote. I mean, he wasn't saying, you know, do recounts and, and check every vote and let's see if I really won. He was pretty much just like taking a racer to the vote totals and uh, say they were different. Um, I, I don't know what you claim this is. I mean, I guess treason might not be the correct word, but um, – complete um, distortion of the democratic process is definitely a play there. Um, Catherine, what was your take on at least the parts of the audio you heard? Well, I listened to about uh, half of the one hour um, tape. uh, And then I just, I had, I couldn't listen to it anymore. Uh, He, I mean, let's just face it. Our president is, um, unstable and uh, doesn't understand uh, how elections work or if he does he doesn't he's not uh, using that information in the way he is trying to convince um, people that he won I mean he keeps talking about how he had so many people at his rally so he must have won well rallies don't vote as we know, um, it was very uh, stream of consciousness, uh, you know, just rambling. But uh, you're absolutely right. The the final uh, the the final uh, thing he was hoping for was just change the vote. I won. It's obvious. You all are stupid if you don't run, understand that, and uh, we don't need to do all this other stuff. You just need to, you know, correct it and show that I won. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't – I have no idea how in any way, shape, or form you, you thought that this would work. Um, Tim, your thoughts on this audio? Well, in, in, in his book. <clears throat> Disloyal Michael Cohen Said way back in 2011 He knew That if Donald Trump ever running For president he would win Because Donald Trump Literally will do Anything to win It doesn't matter what it is And Trump gave No thought at all to the niceties or the legalities of things when he made that phone call. He just figured, well, this this guy's supposed to be a loyal Republican, so he needs to do what I want him to do because this is my party. Uh, you know, this is all Trump. This is a loyalty test. I mean, uh, 
We saw Senator Thune failed the test. We saw that the governor of Georgia failed the test. Well, now the test is for the Secretary of State, and anyone who is against him, you know, is 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 a loser. So you know that that's just the way Donald Trump sees it, and you know he's listening to all this conspiracy craziness, and it fits. In very well with what he wants as his end game, which is to emerge as the winner, uh, and he'll he'll do whatever it takes, guys. You know, we shouldn't we 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 express shock and surprise over and over, but should we be surprised at all at anything this man does or says, no matter what it is? Yes, it doesn't uh, look like we can be shocked by much as well. Now, let me get to the other side of this. Catherine, why do you think um, Brad Raffensperger recorded this? Does he record all of his calls, or do you think he just kind of knew he needed proof? Oh, he probably records all his calls. I don't think that's very uncommon. And then here's the thing. I know like when you uh, – you, you, so a lot of times when you have people on speakerphone, you have people on um, recording, you say, hey, do you mind if I do this? If he did this, I wonder if Donald Trump uh, – like, sure, no problem. That would have been pretty shocking. Well, let me go ahead and uh, change gears because we're so excited about having our guest on the second time on the Kudzu Vine, uh, political consultant extraordinaire, Mr. Chuck Rocha. Welcome, Chuck. Hey, how's everybody doing? Doing great. Um, well, first off, uh, we had you on a few uh, months ago when you uh, T.O. Bernie had just come out. Uh, since then, it seems like I've seen you everywhere. How's the book sales and uh, talk and buzz around the book going? Oh, it's going really, really well. Um, the book has, you know, calmed down. The election was over. It's just kind of been a time of, uh, you know, kind of reflecting and getting everything ready to start doing it all over again, to be honest with you. Yes. Well, um, and like I said, I've, uh, you've been just all kind of places, um, you know, talking up democratic strategy. And a, a lot of the things that you've been, I've started following you on Twitter, have been so interesting. And one I wanted to ask you about before I get to some great political content questions with Catherine and Tim was Arizona representative, uh, Ruben um, Gallego. 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 See, that's why I need you, Chuck. Uh, Gallego. Um, he, he said um, after the election, when looking at some of the results in some of the states, and I know Tim's going to um, get more into that and Catherine as well, that one problem that people have when messaging to Hispanic voters is saying that, or using the uh, terminology Latinx or Latinx. Um, that it should be Latino, Latina. What's your take on that as being the leading consultant in this area? Well, I, first of all, uh, I'd use some Southern ingenuity and Southern strategy, which would be to tell you there ain't a good answer. And because I'm a bad consultant, because I am one to tell the truth a lot. And there's no right answer here or wrong answer. Uh, but what I would tell folks is that you have a divide of culture, right? So you have a younger class of Latinos. Now, keep in mind, the average age of a Latino in America is only 26. So you have this young group of Latino activists or Latinx activists who want to do something that is 
is right, which is not show gender bias or gender conformity for people that are transgendered, people that are gay, people that will choose to use another pronoun. So they think, and that's rightfully so to think this, that they will use a gender neutral word that they made up, which is Latinx. And if that's the way you want to be described, I want to reflect that to you. And so I give that back. Me, myself, I use the Latin phrase of Latino, which is the proper Spanish uh, wording of it, just when I am talking about folks or when I'm delivering a message to somebody via mail, via uh, communication to a voter, because the voter, and you've seen this in research, most Latinos don't even know what Latinx is. But within the woke brown culture, we do, and I'm part of that culture. So when we are, are talking amongst ourselves, that's cool. But when you take that into uh, an older Mexican-American neighborhood in the south side of San Antonio, it's probably not something anybody's ever seen before. Yes, and I see it a lot. I'm working on my uh, master's in political science, and I see it a lot in academia. And then um, an author, Joel, I just listened to Pete Buttigieg's book, and he used it. But then you see um, more in the um, non-academic world, you do see it less, and so I, I see the divide in my own life, if you will. Well, um, we're sitting here in Georgia, and I know you had some thoughts on the, that election, so I'm going to pass it to Catherine to phrase some questions, and she's going to pass it to Tim, and then I may have some more stuff in the end. Catherine? Okay. Hey, thanks for being on with us tonight. It's great to no have problem. you here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And there happy 117th Congress. I don't know if you're as much of a political junkie as we are here, but I think we've all been watching C-SPAN all day. So, <laughs> But that's just because we want to avoid the commercials that we keep seeing about our Senate elections, I'm sure. So what are your thoughts on uh, this runoff in Georgia, and how is the <clears throat> Latino vote, what is the impact going to be with the Latino vote? I think the impact is going to be huge just because, as y'all already know, I think the margins are going to be really, really tight. You know, if you would have asked me, you know, four months ago, if we got to a runoff after November with both of these elections, do we have a shot to win? And I'd have told everybody we don't have a snowball's chance of winning either one of them. Then the election happens and Joe Biden carries the state. You know, we we still don't – there's about a – 80 to 100,000 vote variable between the Senate races and the presidential. So I say, you look, we're probably still not going to win this thing, but there's a chance we could win it. And now as we've continued to go, and you've seen who's early voting, you've seen who's voting by mail. And this one statistic stood out to me today where there's 115,000 voters who's voted in this runoff who did not participate in the November election. And of those, 40, over 40% 40 of them are African-American. Those kind of numbers give me hope to where I think the thing's a 50-50 toss-up where four weeks ago I'd have said it was 90-10 uh, towards the Republicans. You're absolutely right. You know, we're here in Georgia, we're, we uh, Democrats just dread runoffs because we typically have terrible turnout for runoffs. But I think we're all surprised by these numbers uh, that we're seeing, and, and, you know, we're all crossing fingers and toes to, in hopes that we don't get – that the uh, election day voting uh, is not, does not overturn all this early voting activity. But, but specifically, how are, the, how are Latino voters um, – do we, do we, do have you seen numbers on the Latino voters and what is the um, – what is that 
How does that look? It, it looks good. I mean, they're voting at least the same percentages that we did in November. And for folks that are recapping, you know, listening who are political animals like you and all your guests and all the folks listening, you know, there's a million Latinos in Georgia. Now, are they all registered? Are they all of age? Are they all citizens? No. There's a million Latinos in the state of Georgia, over a million, to be honest. And of those, there's about 300,000 of them that are registered who are, you know, active participants, you know, in some election in their lifetime. And almost 200,000 of them showed up in the November election. And there's been a ton of money put into the ground operations for Latinos. There's like six different groups that I'm coordinating with on the ground. We have a regular call every other week. And there's lots of money going to those groups to knock on doors. The thing that bothers me is that that's where the extent of it ends, though. There's, you know, there's going to be $400 million spent in that state, but very little of that's going to Spanish language, TV, and radio compared to English. Keep in mind, I know Latinos are only going to be maybe 5% of the electorate. But still, I, I kind of get my, my hair raised on my back sometimes when they just look at the Latino vote as something you put money into for canvassing. Uh, Latinos, me, myself, I'm watching TV right now. I've gotten so much into this TV program, I almost forgot to call into this radio show where you should be spending money to talk to Latinos on TV or in the radio because we listen to that as well. And sometimes they just see black and brown voters as a, can- a canvassable universe only. And I think that's a mistake. Oh, I agree. And the, th- the funny thing is, is that um, we do have some really lively, uh, popular um, Spanish language radio. I listen to it myself, even though I don't speak Spanish just because I like the music they play. Um, and, it's unfortunate that we're not taking advantage of those media opportunities, um, especially when you see all the money that's being spent on media, um, as we can witness from watching television. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope and that we're... we have. I hope that we have something really good to celebrate on Tuesday, and uh, and that that that's the other question. What do you think? Uh, how long are we going to wait to find out the results? Have you thought about that at all? I have, and I think that you know this as well as I do, is that you know Georgia doesn't start counting their early votes until the polls close on election day. So it's going to show Republicans ahead, uh, and how much of a lead do they have will be determined on how much we can make up that we've done with this early vote. I think we'll know in uh, if you remember how the votes came in election night. I think we'll know something within for sure uh, within 24 hours. I don't think we'll know anything that night, to be honest with you. I think we have to uh, all have to get. Uh, familiar with the idea that election night is not going to show us the results that we've seen in the past. I think that's just going to be a thing of a thing that we have to get used to. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to pass it to Tim. He's got some more questions for you. Thanks so much. And thanks for all your work here. Mm -hmm. Good evening, Chuck. Thank you for being on again with us tonight. Um, As a fellow Southerner, um, I've, I've read where you've said a lot that people make the mistake of, of, of talking about Latino voters in that universe that you just mentioned, that that they're all somehow the same. And, and you said that's a great mistake because they're, they're different everywhere. So how are Latino voters in your home state of Texas different from, say, the Latino voters of the other states of the old Confederacy, and how are they similar? Well, the ways that they're different 
is that in Texas where I'm from, I would be a third generation Texan and I sound like you, like I grew up in a white family in the deep South uh, because my granddaddy uh-huh. was a white man from Kentucky. So that start there. So Latinos uh-huh. have been in Texas for a long time. Now they are predominantly Mexican American, probably over uh, 75% in Texas. Now that's a similarity to Latinos mm-hmm. in Georgia that are dominated by Mexican Americans as well. But in Georgia, Latinos just have not been there as long. So these folks that you see, if you dig into the data, are the children of Latinos that moved to Georgia 15, 20 years ago to rebuild, not rebuild, but build up the state with all of this massive growth that you've had, building the roads, building mm-hmm. the schools, building the houses. Guess who was doing all that mm-hmm. building? Mexicans. And not all of them were documented. So these, all of these folks who moved there because that's where the work was. Even in the film industry, like there's work has been happening in Georgia. There's one thing about us Latinos. We're going to show up where there's some work going on because there's money to be made. Same thing happened in New Orleans when Katrina came through there is you had a congressional district of African-Americans move out of New Orleans and a congressional district of Mexicans move in because, again, to do the work. So what you have is a younger demographic of these children. Well, these children have went to school in school with white kids in and around Atlanta. So you have a younger classification of Mexican-American children who have assimilated to somewhat with their white neighbors and cohorts but still are tied to the culture because their mother and or father were undocumented. In many cases, these children had to be the interpreters for the family. So you have these cultural nuances, and I don't want to get too deep here, but these are real dim- differences between places like Florida, California, and Texas than a Georgia because they may mm-hmm. be the same Mexican-Americans, but they've had a different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in Texas, Biden actually performed a little worse than, than Clinton did in 2016, and particularly in the uh, Mexican border counties. Why was that? There's a number of reasons, and you aren't but the 138th person to ask me that in the last three weeks, <laughs> which is good, because I want to bring attention to this. Uh, a couple things have happened. A, People didn't realize that Hillary and Bill Clinton spent a lot of time in the Valley of Texas in their youth with the Southwest Voters Registration Program just doing a lot of work. So they had name ID in the regions along the valley. And then you had somebody like Donald Trump who was very bombastic. People know him. He's got 100 percent name ID. And then the Democrats down there didn't really spend any money. They talked about Texas being this big state. We would maybe win it back. But we all know. Talk is cheap, but money is what is the mother's milk of politics. If you ain't spending no money to talk to people, then they ain't hearing or picking up what you're putting down. So that's exactly what happened. And if you couple that, think about this. In these border counties where they're all Democrats for the most part, so there's no general election there, you couple that with this was the first election in American history in Texas where they had done away with straight ticket voting. And for all of you listening, that means in Texas up until this election, you could just go into the voter booths, check one box that said Democrat, and every Democrat on the ballot would get your vote. You didn't have to vote to do it again. And there's a whole generation of Mexicans like me in Texas. That's how we was taught to vote. No other way. Mm -hmm. Well, that wasn't available. So a lot of people didn't take the time to vote, you know, all the way down the ticket, or they didn't understand how that worked, and why don't we have straight – so you take those two things, and then the third thing 
It's just the lack of information out there and the disinformation campaign that was put out by a lot of these Republican groups that Donald Trump was around in Spanish talking about, you know, how bad that Joe Biden was a socialist and that they're coming to get your guns. Then I guess the fourth thing I would just throw in there is people don't realize to your earlier question, which is these Mexican rednecks in the valley are a lot like Chuck Rocha. They wear a pair of boots every day. They go they have pickup trucks. They go to the rodeo. And they got a little redneck tinge to them, right? And so you got to mm-hmm. go make the point or they'll fall in line with what any other redneck would do who doesn't get much information about how this economic populism can change their life. People are astonished when I say that, mm-hmm. yes, Donald Trump did really well in the Valley. But guess who won every one of those counties in the primary? Bernie Sanders. And they're like, how does that happen? I'm like, well, because I ran that campaign, and when we went down there, we didn't talk about being socialist. We didn't talk about the new Green New Deal or not liking oil and gas. We went there talking about the rigged system and an economic populism, which was something that moved Latinos in the valley. Yeah. Now, as Texas, the, the, the $64,000 question that every person in the country wants to ask, and I'm sure you've had this one asked to you 138 times in the last two weeks as well, is Texas at last ready to become a two-party state at elections, and will Hispanic voters lead the way in that? It is possible. I think the the question is, when does that happen? And I'm going to tell you that it happens when somebody makes a real investment. Now, folks would push back, and rightfully so, and say mm-hmm. that to say that Obeto O'Rourke spent eighty million dollars and almost won and almost turned the state blue. Well, that's because Beto ran about three quarters of a race. If Beto would have uh-huh. hired a TV consultant and run a bunch of Spanish-language TV and English-language TV on top of the extraordinary grassroots operation that he had, he would have been the center. He'd have beat Ted Cruz all day long. Ted Cruz outspent mm-hmm. him 10 to 1 the last three weeks of the, of the election, and he didn't go up on TV because he thought grassroots could win it. Grassroots is just mm-hmm. one part of winning that. So if you will go in and do an investment in the Latino community in that valley to say, okay, Mexican redneck, let me tell you what these Republicans are going to do for you in your wallet, and here's how Democrats are going to do and what they're going to do for you. Then you can start seeing some movement. But until that investment's made, we're still you know, four to eight years away. Oh, okay. I want to ask you one national question now, um, and then I'll send it back to David. Historically, in presidential elections, we see that Latino voters gave their biggest votes to Bill Clinton in 1996 and Barack Obama in 2012. What, in your opinion, about those two candidates was so appealing to Hispanic voters? Well, it was a different electorate back then. It was a little bit of an older electorate. You had folks that people kind of knew, and they liked the message of, if you think about Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton always talked upbeat about what he was going to do. You know, I remember my grandmother, God rest her soul, uh, in Tyler, Texas, and she more or less raised me. She used to tell me that it, when Bill Clinton would talk on the TV, and back when I was a young man, there was only three channels. So if he was on, he was on all of them. And when he would talk to the camera, she, she thought he was talking to just her. He made that connection, right? And I think that's the same thing that Barack Obama did, is that connection mm-hmm. to a voter. And what you had this cycle is at least you had Donald Trump smart enough as this carnival barker to go out and spend 
millions of dollars in Spanish to say why Joe Biden was bad and not why he was good and to be able to siphon off just enough to win states like Florida and North Carolina and other states where if you there's a formula how you do this. I wrote a book about it with T.O. Bernie that if you go out mm-hmm. and talk to Latinos and have a conversation with them about how to make their life better, they will listen to you for the most part. There's like 20 percent of them you'll never get. Let's just take the Cubans off the table and a few other folks. But there's there's no mm-hmm. reason why Democrats couldn't be winning 80 percent of the Latino vote in every election if they did it the right way. Mm. So politics really is local then, isn't it? I mean, it is if you're making that connection. It's personal, and it's become more nationalized. But it starts uh-huh. with people want to have this argument with me about what's this policy, Chuck, and that policy. I'm like, well, the first, it starts with just having a conversation. Like we take so many Latinos off the table because they may not be frequent voters. Let's have some conversation with infrequent and newly registered voters, and they will move to you. This last election proved that. Well, and with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes. Well, Chuck, I mean, I think people can listen and hear what a handle you have on turning out the Latino vote in different places across our country. And you alluded online that tomorrow you're going to make a major announcement. Now, I know tomorrow you're going to make the announcement, but if you could even drop a hint, uh, just a clue for our listeners, feel free to do that right now. I appreciate it, and thanks for teeing that up for me. After this last election, I really was frustrated because of the lack of effort I felt personally about how you reach out to black voters, how you reach out to Latino voters, how you reach out to young voters. And so instead of sitting back and complaining, I went and did some research and found that there was not one single black manager, Latino manager, black senior consultant, or Latino senior consultant on any congressional race in the top 20, any Senate race, any governor's race of any Democrat across America. Let that sink in for you. So tomorrow morning, and I'll tell your listeners now because it was already out in Politico this weekend, I'm launching the nation's first black and brown-owned media firm in America. Me and another sister from the South, Kara Turrington from Nashville, Tennessee, are launching the nation's first black woman and Latino man-owned media firm so Democrats can no longer say that there's not a black or brown-owned firm in America that could be doing and helping us do this messaging and doing this political work. So we wanted to create space for more people of color, more black women, more Latinos, all of the above, to have a place to try to break into the top echelon of Democratic campaigns. Because there's one thing they all had in common this last cycle is that we were not at the table in any of these campaigns. Now, there were a lot of wonderful field directors and political directors, but the folks actually running the campaign, the media consultants, the digital consultants, the senior strategists, all are white women and white men, which is great, and I ain't got nothing against white men or white women. For God's sakes, my mama's a white woman. I'm just saying that there (laughs) has to be a place at the table for us, and I'm creating that space with a new firm called Black and Brown Partners. Yes, and so if people wanted to read up more on this firm, um, would they just Google that, or do you have a website put up, or where can people learn more? All of this stuff will go live tomorrow. There will be a Twitter account. There will be a Facebook. We're going to put a press release out at 9 in the morning, and I believe it's going to be blackbrownpartners.com. And uh, me and Kara have worked on putting together our first TV commercial, which is a launch video that will be on my Twitter in the morning, at Chuck Rocha. So you can see some great – you can get, get get to meet Kara. You can get to see my ugly mug and see some of the work we've been doing. All right. Well, this is excellent. We've enjoyed having you back on the Kudzu Vine. Hopefully both you and maybe Kara in the future can be a guest 
down the line. Oh, y'all should have Kara on. You would love it. Kara is an African-American woman from Nashville, Tennessee, who started her own mail firm, you know, about eight years ago. And I met her, and she became a senior strategist for Bernie because I brought her in. She is a daughter of the South, grew up in Nashville. Y'all would love to have her on. Hey, we, we already knew it was a good reference if you went into business with her, so you just sold her even more. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again. Take care now. Thanks, Thank Chuck. you, sir. Congratulations. Y'all be good. You too. All right. That was Chuck Rocha. Um, have you noticed, um, and I don't know if Chuck noticed this too, he had these major life events when he comes on to the Kudzu Vine. Last time he got engaged, the day he came on, tomorrow he's launching a new business. Um, you know, I, I don't know what he wants planned in his life, but maybe we should just book him at that time for the Kudzu Vine, and it'll happen for him. I don't know. Um, <laughs> coincidental there. Well, let's go ahead. We've got 16 minutes, and we've got one topic that we've got to talk about because we've been talking about this topic for months now, um, and that is these two Georgia runoffs. Um, we'll have to save time for our, our um, predictions. In fact, Tim, do you think we should do our predictions and then talk or talk and then do our predictions? That's up to you. You're the host. You, you call the shots. Well, let's just make sure we have time for the predictions in the end, but let's kind of get talking about these things. First off, there's been, in recent weeks, poll after poll after poll that shows John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock with small leads. I just forwarded you one while we were talking to Chuck that showed both candidates up by around four points. Now, polls, we love our pollsters that come on. But we know polls, we wouldn't, you know, set our watch to them. We wouldn't bet our mortgage on the actual top-line number anymore. But everything seems to be trending this way. At the same time, we see people on Twitter that have models put together of where votes turning out and if it turns out at the same rate. I think, um, I think his name is Jane, LaShane Jane. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, but he is uh, speculating around a two-point victory for uh, uh, Warnock and Ossoff. Catherine, um, what do you think about this data that we're getting right now? Well, you know, I'm 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 always uh, skeptical about polls, but um, these early voting and uh, absentee voting numbers are uh, really quite. Uh, impressive for the Democrats. And from what I've read, you know, some of the numbers I've seen is they're looking at something like over a million Republican votes on election day in order to, um, in order to balance against these early voting and um, absentee voting. So, you know, I'm, uh, as usual, um, I'm a little bit of a Pollyanna, so I'm almost always cautiously optimistic um, I do think that uh, I, I'm kind of surprised that in these last, uh, in this closing, that we are still seeing all these negative ads from the Republicans. I think that's a mistake. I think uh, everyone wants to vote for someone, and uh, we aren't seeing any uh, messaging around the reasons to vote for. Uh, Loeffler and 
Purdue, except that they're not Democrats. So, um, you know, we've got two more days, and we've got a lot going on tomorrow. Uh, The president's going to be in town, and the president-elect is also going to be in town. And there's a lot of, you know, there have been tons of virtual, you know, fundraisers and, you know, online forums and all kinds of celebrity participation. So all eyes on Georgia and let's hope it's a, it's a good, uh, we have good results on Monday, on Tuesday. Yes, and Catherine, I'm going to put, come back to that point about the Loeffler, or Leffler, I keep, I see the O, I say O, Loeffler and Purdue um, ad strategy. But Tim, you know, same thing, the numbers, the, the, the numbers we're getting for what they're worth look way better than White Fowler or Jim Martin had in a similar position. Well, I mean, here's what we know. We know the to- total electoral vote is it's just right at 3 million. That's 38% of registered voters. Another thing I was talking about, uh, why Trump w- was coming to a place like Dalton instead of the metro area. When we look at how they voted, say, oh, in your county, David, 33%. Turnout so far down there, 32% in my county, similar in Whitfield, similar in every county up this way, until you get down to Paulding, where 41% is voted. You get to DeKalb, 46% is voted. In Fulton, where Catherine is, 42% is voted. Cobb, 40%. Those are high, high, high turnouts in big Democratic areas. Um, we know the breakdown of, of – uh, you know who they are. We know that that blacks right now are voting at about a 31% clip. That's high. We know that whites are voting at a 56% clip. That's not so high. Uh, the age is a different thing, though, and it makes me pause here. By far, we're, we're talking um, in, in, in the age group 66 plus. Something like 63% of them have voted. Now, I know uh, they vote at higher levels in, uh, you know, early voting and especially absentee. But that is really, really, really high. Um, We know that Democrats lead by 16 points among those voters who voted in primaries, but 44% of the early vote did not vote in the primaries, and we don't know who they are. While these numbers look good, I really want to caution, maybe we don't know enough quite yet to do a happy dance. I just, I'm I'm not ready to go there. How about you, David? Well, and one thing, we don't, we're not doing a show for predicted. We're not telling anybody to spend their money. Uh, anybody's willing to put money based on um, poll data right now, um, that's mm-hmm. a scary thing. And some of the cross tabs we've seen are suspect. You know, like only seven percent of the uh, only seven percent of the election day vote. I'm sorry, seven uh, percent of the total vote is going to occur on election day. I can't believe that. If that's the case, I may start on election day to avoid the lines because I stood in about a 30-minute line earlier this week um, after standing in a two-plus-hour line for the general election. Um, 
And then we saw another one today. I think I think the or yesterday the Gravis poll had um, Ossoff and Warnock down with African American voters, but exceeding all kind of numbers with white voters. Now I will say this: we know I think overall that those numbers we saw in that Gravis poll would not reflect the white voting population in total of Georgia. But could it be that the voters that have voted that are white or will vote? could skew more Democratic than the electorate normally is. Uh, and, and that's going to mm-hmm. be an interesting number. If, if this, if, you know, they yeah. end up getting 30, 32% of the white vote, they're going to okay. win. Can I throw in a question for sure. y'all? And, and our guest uh, alluded to this. 115,651 of these early voters did not vote on November the 3rd. I saw Stacey Abrams on TV this morning. She swore that most of those are Democratic voters, and she, she said she she knows they are. Is, is, uh, why don't you all try this? Is she right about that? I, I think she is. Because, I mean, if you're going to be a voter that um, is, thinks, oh, no, we've got to stop socialism, well, you had already been voting uh, in all these elections because you were so scared of socialism. Um, Catherine, I'll let you answer that, and then I'm going to get back to what you were talking about, about ad strategies. Well, I um, I think that um, – well, I trust Stacey Abrams, so I believe what she says. And mm-hmm. I think that there's been a lot of excitement on the Democratic side. There's been a lot of um, – I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of excitement on the Republican side too, but – there seems to be a you know a lot of young people who are involved. I also think they did a really um, strong effort to get people registered who are turning 18, like who turned 18 between the election and the runoff. Um, so that that I think was a was a big push. I don't think that's all of those people, but I think that it's some of them. Uh, so yeah, I believe that a lot of those people that the majority of them are Democrats. Yes, I believe that. And I wanted to say something about our earlier conversation. In Georgia, it's a a one-person consent law on recording a telephone conversation. So you don't have, if you're in on on a phone call, you can record it without telling the other person and it's still uh, legal and okay. Like you, you know, just FYI. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be taking my chance if I were um, recording someone um, that sat in the Oval Office personally. Um, I, I've been in IP meetings with parents, and we asked their permission to put them on speakerphone. Um, you know, you would think that the President of the United States would be afforded <laughs> a little more courtesy on that one. Well, maybe not necessarily. And, 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 but maybe he was. Don't forget something. Yeah. Don't forget something, David. Uh, Raffensperger's lawyer was sitting there too. Remember? Yeah, no, that's right. Dad's who wanted it taped, and maybe so. And I that shows how little the trust is, even with their own party. Guys, we're never going to get these predictions um, uh, if we don't. But <laughs> let me go ahead and um, talk about ad strategy quickly. And Catherine, you alluded to something that I saw in print earlier, talking about how almost every ad. There's been a few Leffler ads. Um, Purdue did some early ads that were positive, but in the run-up to this uh, runoff, the ads have been Stop Socialism, 
the Democratic candidates are going to support lawlessness and defund the police and everything horrible that could ever exist, whereas Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff still have some positive ads up about health care and other issues. I mean, they do have negative ads talking about, um, you know, abuse of office in particular, um, but they have a higher percentage of what they actually stand for. Um, do you think this is going to be seen as a mistake that Leffler and um, Purdue were almost like 90 plus percent negative on their ad strategy instead of say a 75-25 mix? Are you asking me? Yes, Catherine. Um, yes, I think it. I think it's. Uh, um, uh, I don't think it's a good strategy. I think you know we know negative ads work. Um, but I think, especially in the last, in the closing days, I think we've all seen the advantage of running um, positive uh, ads about the advantages of this, of your candidate. And um, yeah, I think it's, a, I think it was a mistake. I think it's a mistake to be all negative all the time like they are. Yes. Uh, Tim, I'm going to add to that question for you um, real quickly. Is the, the amount of negative ads and negative mail and just mail and commercials and text and phone calls and the fact that, that David Perdue is no longer a senator and George is going to be without representation by design for X number of days until we you know certify a winner um, – so that person can take either he can retake office or John Ossoff can take office. Is this runoff process at least two to three weeks too long? Yes, it definitely is. They should have had these things before Christmas, in my opinion. Uh, but, but because, for one thing, the holidays make people lose sight of what's going on, and then they re-engage and secondly, here we are right up against this thing, like you said. Uh, yeah, they, they need to make the, the turnout period, uh, the turn, uh, runoff period much, much, much shorter than this. This, this was ridiculous. I, I imagine a lot of Georgians don't know that technically David Perdue is not one of our senators at this moment and will not be, you know, uh, doing anything in Washington. Yes, I bet this gets changed, this runoff. I would be okay with the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving. Um, actually, I would be yeah, okay with Thanksgiving. But if you can't have that, um, that might end up being the first day or two of December. could be one of the very fi- final days of Thanksgiving. But the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, um, to me, would be plenty of time to endure this. Well, now it's time for predictions. Well, hold on. Um, Hold on. It's a federal law. It's yeah, not. Uh, it's not up to us. It's a federal it's, law. It's well, a, we, we've had no. We've had this election in December, like December fifth or so. Right, but there was a change in the law. They changed the federal law. They changed the federal law to allow for military and uh, overseas ballots to have time to get here. Well, Catherine, I am a Georgia citizen and an American citizen, and so I think it needs to change at the federal level. I can speak on federal okay. policy, too. I think we ought to change well, it either way because technology should improve things, make things quicker. And this is, once again, a more fuel to the fire for instant runoff voting. 
um, just to, you know, handle the sucker on the regular election day and save a lot of cash other than, uh, you know, political consultants. Well, let's get to these. I was going to let you go first and wrap in your thought. Um, what, what's your prediction on these races? I think we're going to win. The Democrats are going to win. It's going to be very tight, very close, but I think we're going to prevail, and we probably won't know until Thursday. Yes. Okay. Tim, your thought, your predictions. I'm going to say we are going to lose both in the same manner, very close. Okay. I tell you what, I'm going to agree with y'all, both of y'all on two things. One, I think both races are going to stay the same. Two, I think they are going to be close, uh, even though uh, some of the numbers are looking rosier than they thought. But I do, I'm going to agree with Catherine, I think we're going to win. And I'm shocked by this because usually I'm kind of pessimistic on Georgia runoffs and, and elections. I think we have to win more to prove it. But I'm going to trust those models, not these polls, but these models that I've seen that show turnout better in um, Democratic areas and Republican areas. And then here's the thing. I don't think Democrats, the people still doing GOTV, they're not going, oh, early runoffs of, you know, um, early voting's over, we're done. They're still going out saying, go to the polls on election day and vote. And, and I think that's important. I think, you know, Democrats um, in the last cycle or two have kind of lost uh, side of that. You know, before it was like, oh, that's when Republicans vote. Well, anybody can still vote. So let's narrow down and find out who there still is left and get them to the polls on election day. And I think Democrats are actually going to have a better than expected um, day of number, even better than they did in November because of better efforts. So uh, we will see. By next week, we will know um, when Niles Francis uh, comes and join us on the show next week. Until then, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, Good night guys. Everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the law.